Um, I asked a question the other day before we get to Josh, Joshua 24 is where we're going to be in just a moment. Uh, but I asked a question about last time that I almost forgot. It was in response to something David said. David talked about how Abraham, when God called him to obey, uh, obey. Uh, and he was referring to Hebrews 11, 8-10. through 10. Uh, He obeyed, the text says there, not knowing where he was going. Now I ask you, and like I said, I almost forgot this, to laugh at another class on Acts 7 a few minutes ago. But I asked you to look at Acts 7. Did anybody look at that and notice something that was there? Look at Acts 7, verses 2 through 4. Now when you compare the language, what we're going to try to do is compare the language of Acts 7 with the language of Genesis 11. Genesis 11. Now, Acts 7 and verse 2, it said, Hear me, brothers and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. In Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Leave your country and your relatives and come into the land I will show you. Verse 4, Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God removed him into this country in which you are now living. Now looking back to Genesis 11. In Genesis 11, the Bible emphasizes Terah and his sons, uh, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And the text emphasizes that Haran died early. But the Bible tells us that Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, this is verse 31, his grandson, Sarah, his daughter-in-law, his sons, Abram's wife, they went together from Ur of the Chaldeans in, in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran and settled there. What I'm suggesting is that when God called Abraham the first time, leave your country, leave your kin, and leave your father's house, that Abraham falls short of full obedience. Terah goes with them. All the family goes with them. They went to enter Canaan in verse 31 in order to enter Canaan and they settled in Haran. And it is in Haran that God's going to call him leave your country and leave your kindred in Genesis 12.1. But Acts 7 shows us that God called him that the first time he fell short in unbelief. It's the second time that he fully obeys. Did did I express that clearly enough or do you have questions about that? I'm not minimizing Abram's disobedience. I'm not minimizing his obedience. I am emphasizing God's mercy with him. 
in giving him a second opportunity to receive that invitation. That was the point. And that was, and somehow, I don't remember exactly what you said, David. Somehow that came up the other day. And so I told y'all to check on it, and I almost forgot to check on it. So, uh, but if you have a question about that, feel free to ask Sarah. I was going to say, it reminds me of a little bit when one of the disciples said, let me go bury my father first. And, you know. Yes. In a sense, that's what happens. Yeah, it's like, I'll go, but I'm, 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 we're only going to go this far, and when my father's dead, then I'll move on. Yeah, and that's what and that's what he did. That's what he did. I think my comment was more, when he was in Ur, that was a land with many gods, and yes. actually served other gods. Yes. But then when Jehovah says, you need to go, he says, okay, I'll do that. Yeah, and, yes. And I think as you point out accurately, you, yeah. Yeah. He, he went a ways. He didn't go all the way yeah. to start with. Yes, that's right. That's right. And the story of Israel, as we said Sunday, was a story of God's mercy and grace from its inception. But let's begin in Joshua 24, verse 14. I know we read 14 and 15 as we closed last time. But we'll start with verse 14 and read through verse 28 um, together. But Joshua 24 and verse 14. The text says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and truth. And put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt. And serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served who were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Verse 16. The people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is he who brought our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who did great signs in our sight and preserved us through all the way in which we went and among the peoples through, through whose midst we passed. The Lord drove out before us all the peoples, even the Amorites, who lived in the land. We will also serve the Lord, for he is our God. Then Joshua said to the people, You will not be able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then you will turn, he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done good to you. The people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. Joshua said to all the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen for yourselves the Lord to serve him. 
And they said, We are witnesses. Now therefore, put away the foreign gods which are in your midst, and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. The people said to Joshua, We will serve the Lord our God, and we will obey Him. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made for them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. But Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak by which that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it is, for it is heard all the words the Lord heard the words of the Lord which he spoke to us. Thus it will be a witness against you, so that you do not deny your God. Then Joshua dismissed the people, each to his inheritance. Now, I hope I read that well, but over and over, one of the phrases that stand out to me is that the people are called to serve the Lord. Serve the Lord. Uh, The root in Hebrew would look something like this in Hebrew um, writing. But did you notice that some form of that was used like seven times just in verses 14 and 15? Fear the Lord and serve Him. Serve Him in sincerity and truth. Put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable to you to serve the Lord, then choose for yourselves whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served who were beyond the river or the gods... um, of the Amorites in whose land you live, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Just in verses 14 and 15, you find the word seven times. This particular word. It is going to continue to be a key word throughout this section. To serve the Lord. And we'll talk talk more about this as class unfolds. But we said that the possibilities Joshua presents to them, he has, he's built up all this history from 24 verses 2 through 13 talking about everything the Lord had done for them every step of the way. And all of this was an appeal for the people to serve God, to follow God. He presented before them the option of serving the gods their fathers had served so many years before in Mesopotamia. They could serve those gods. They could serve the gods that they uh, saw in Egypt. Or they could serve the gods of the Amorites. But he leaves no doubt where he and his family stand. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Me and my house we will serve the Lord. Um, Paul asked, uh, what are some previous points he had made in bringing Israel to this point? What, what are the points that, that 
that Joshua has made previously to lead them to make that conclusion. I mean, you could say a lot. There. Yeah, he talked about all the things that God has done for them. All the events. What he had to do to get them out of Egypt. Yeah. And, uh, caring for them in the wilderness. And, yes. Calling Abraham to begin with and then what he did to, to deliver them from Egypt and in the wilderness and giving them victory over Sihon and Og and the kings of Canaan. You know, all of this leads the people to uh, this conclusion. or He's trying to lead the people to the conclusion that you need to serve the Lord. The Lord is the one who has given you deliverance from every difficulty and rescued you from every problem. And he, the people say, far be it from us that we will forsake our God to serve other gods. By the way, there's our key word, serve, in verse 16. We're not going <coughs> to forsake the Lord our God to serve other gods. And they mention all that God has done for them. They mention the Lord our God brought us and our fathers out of the land of Egypt. God brought us out of Egypt. And the second thing, He did great signs in our sight and preserved us through all the way we went and among all the peoples through whose midst we passed. So God protected us in the wilderness. He brought us out of Egypt. He protected us in the wilderness. Then in verse 18, the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, even the Amorites who lived in the land. He gave us the land of Canaan. They mentioned three points in their description of why they will serve the Lord. God brought us out of Egypt. God protected us and guided us all through our days in the wilderness. And God has given us the land of Canaan. Those are three reasons in verses 17 and 18 that they say we will serve the Lord. And you notice that in verse 18 they use that expression again by saying we will serve the Lord. I want you to look at your translations in verse 17. Notice that he calls Egypt, in the New American Standard, he calls it a house of bondage. Do any of your translations have anything different for the house of bondage? The land of slavery. The land of slavery. The land of slavery. Now, this word is generally translated house, but this is the same word, same root word, translated serve all these other times. They were slaves in Egypt. And God rescued them from slavery in Egypt and called them to serve Him. Life offers these alternatives. We can be a servant of God or we can be a slave to sin. John 8 presents that alternative. Romans 6 presents that alternative. And in effect, in effect, this passage does too. Because God delivered them 
from an oppressive, burdensome slavery. They should serve Him with joy. But verse 17 is going to use that word in a little different way than it's used throughout the text. Generally, it's a call to serve God. Sometimes it's a statement that uh, you may serve another God. But uh, the text tells us that, that they were delivered from the house of slavery, the land of slavery, the house of bondage. Any thoughts right there? Okay. Paul asked uh, what, how the people responded. What was Israel's response to Joshua's charge? And he asked, does that, char- does that response surprise you? Um, I think that, that question, does this response surprise you, uh, also could be asked, and he may, in effect does, of the next question. Uh, when the people say we're going to serve the Lord... What does Joshua say? Does Joshua say, okay, you finally got it. It's what I was building up to. Thank you. You're dismissed. What does he say? You're not going to do it. You're not going to do it. Now, why, if he has been building to that conclusion every step of the way, why, when they say, when they draw the conclusion, he wants them to draw, and they say, we're going to serve the Lord in verse 16 and verse 18. Why would he say that? Why would he say that? You, I mean, it, maybe he wants to make sure they're aware of the consequences of taking a, essentially taking a false oath. I mean, yes. and you've got to count the cost. And you, you're, yes, exactly. you're swept along by this narrative that I've given you. And of course you're going to say yes. And, yeah. But you've got to realize there's more to it. Counting the cost is, a, is an expression that really gets my attention in this particular passage. Before Sarah mentioned Luke 9, verses 57 through 62, about the man who says, I will follow you, Lord, but permit me first to go and bury my father. And he said, let the dead bury the dead, but as for you, go and preach the kingdom of God. And when large crowds were following Jesus in Luke 14, Jesus says, if any man will come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And he says, uh, if you love father or mother more than me, you're not worthy of me. Or son or daughter more than me, you're not worthy of me. If you don't hate your own life, you can't be my disciple. I think Joshua is doing the same thing here. By the way, he also uses our word serve here. You are not going to be able to serve the Lord. You're not going to be able to serve the Lord. Uh, And um, he is trying to get them to count the cost to realize the consequences of the covenant that they're entering in with God. I don't know if we can begin to grasp how profound, how awesome it is to be in a covenant with a holy God. I don't know that we can. 
And there was a passage in our daily reading today that demonstrates this. If you look back to Exodus 33, Exodus 33, in verse 3, God said, Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. For I am not going to go up in your midst because you are an obstinate people and I might destroy you on the way. In verse 5, For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the sons of Israel, You are an obstinate people. Should I go up in your midst for one moment, I would destroy you. Now therefore, put off your ornaments from you, that I may know what I will do with you. May we get a better grasp. I don't know if we can ever fully grasp. But may we get a better grasp of what it means for a holy God to be among us and its responsibilities, its profound responsibilities on our life. God says, I'm not going to go up in your midst because I would destroy you because you are an obstinate, you're stubborn, and you're rebellious people. And here in verse 19, God is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He is holy. He is jealous. And if you forsake Him, in verse 20, if you forsake Him and serve foreign gods, the term serve is used here of other gods, if you serve foreign gods, the same God who has done you so much good will turn and bring judgment on you. And that is, in effect, the history of Israel. The history of Israel is that they do turn away from serving the Lord God. They forsake the Lord God. They serve foreign gods. And God does bring judgment on them. Now, my guess is that there is something that's said there that you're probably going to ask a question about in verses 19 and 20. What is it that you have a question about? Sarah is quick to raise her hand because she's ready for this question. What does, what's your question, Sarah? And this is also uh, a question that Paul asked about. But what, what? Well, my question is that you will not be able to serve the Lord. That part, does that mean it is impossible for anyone to serve the Lord? Uh, okay. That, that concept. And then there's. Okay, the good question. Okay, we'll, we'll stop you on that question okay. right there. Okay, take one at a time. Yeah, I was going to ask you if there's like something special about that word. But... No. Okay. It doesn't mean it's impossible to serve the Lord. And how do we know that from this chapter? How do we know that from this chapter? Because Joshua says, I will serve the Lord. Joshua says, I will serve the very good point. He says, I will serve him in verse verse. Uh, 15 that Isolde mentions but I was thinking you're right Isolde I was thinking of verse 31 Israel served the Lord 
all the days of Joshua. In all the days of the elders who served Joshua. So when he says you're not able to do it, he is not stating that, that, that it's an utter impossibility to be a servant of the Lord. Uh, it is more a statement of rebuke to them than it is a statement that you cannot serve the Lord. So as Zolda points out, Joshua says, me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And then in that's verse 15 and verse 31, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. So we've asked that first, we've answered the first part. Uh, go ahead with the second part. Okay, that was the point where I was expecting people to ask. He will not forgive your transgressions and sins. I don't remember any song we've written on that. He will not forgive your transgressions and your sins. No, we, we sing songs the opposite, don't we? But we don't sing that. Now, what I want us to try to do is to understand this statement is worthy of us focusing on and not ignoring. But we don't want to ignore all the Scriptures say. This, this somehow fits in all the Scriptures we don't have to play dueling scriptures that, well, this says he does this, and somebody comes, this says he doesn't. I mean, we, we can bring these all together. But, first of all, do you know of any other verses that state God will not forgive a transgression or sin? Blasphemy. Okay. Blasphemy against the Spirit. In Matthew twenty-one, uh, Matthew 12, 31 and 32. Now, we're not going to talk about that tonight. But that is, and that's one that I did expect to come up. But blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven in this life nor in the life to come. Um, but I think its explanation may be tied to some of these other verses. Can you think of any other verses where you see that? He will not forgive our transgressions and sin. Uh, Hebrews 10, 26. If you go on sinning willfully after okay. the truth, there remains <coughs> sacrifice for sins. Yes. I, I do think, that's a good point. I probably should put that up there. Uh, I, I think that may be tied contextually with what's going on there, David, that if they turn away from the sacrifice of Christ, if they turn back to Judaism, believing it will offer them protection from legal protection, uh, then there is no forgiveness, there is no salvation there. I think that's a point. But look at Exodus 23 and verse 21. Exodus 23... And verse 21, the Bible says, Be on your guard. This is God. Um, let me start with verse 20. 
Behold, I'm going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way and to bring you into the place that I have prepared. Be on your guard before him and obey his voice. Do not be rebellious toward him, for he will not pardon my not pardon your transgression since my name is in him. So Exodus 23 verse 21 I will not forgive his transgression. Uh, don't be rebellious. Uh, he will not pardon your transgression. Look at Deuteronomy 29. Deuteronomy 29 and verse <coughs> Verse 18 is a verse we could start with. And it's still picking up in the middle of a sentence. This is Deuteronomy 29, verse 18. So there will not be among you a man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. That there will not be among you a root bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood. And it shall be when he hears the words of this curse that he shall boast saying, I have peace though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart in order to destroy the watered land with the dry. The Lord will never be willing to forgive him. But rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will burn against that man and every curse which is written in this book will rest on him and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. The Lord will never be willing to forgive this person. Deuteronomy 29 and verse 20. Now... I think when you go back and you look at those passages carefully, that they are emphasizing you cannot be rebellious, you cannot be disobedient, you cannot use the mercy of God as an excuse to defiantly rebel against God. And this is telling us that while we are rebellious like this, there is no forgiveness, there is no mercy. It may tie in principle with these two other passages. But I think that's the point of the passage. I think the point of the passage is... God's mercy and God's forgiveness is not an excuse for continued rebellion. And if you continue in rebellion, you are not going to be forgiven. I think that he's saying that here about God is a jealous God and you turn and you worship other gods. He's holy. He's jealous. He's not going to forgive you. But there's another passage that's also very important. And this is 2 Kings 24. 2 Kings 24 in verse 2 through 4. We're going to particularly emphasize verse 4. 2 Kings 24 and verse 4. But let's read verses 2 through 4 in order to get this context. The Bible said, The Lord sent against him bands of Chaldeans, bands of Arameans, bands of Moabites, bands 
bands of Ammonites. So he sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord which he spoke through his servant the prophet. Surely at the command of the Lord it shall come upon Judah to remove them from his sight because of the sons of Manasseh according to all that he had done and also for the innocent blood which he shed for he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood and the Lord would not forgive. The Bible says the Lord wouldn't forgive. Now who is this who has filled Jerusalem with innocent blood? Who is the one whose sins would not be forgiven? Manasseh. Okay. You know what's striking about that? Manasseh was forgiven. And you look at 2 Chronicles 33. 2 Chronicles is built on this statement. If this my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my faith and turn from their wicked ways, four things, then I will, and God promises, I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin and heal their land. I will forgive their sin. The Bible tells us in 2 Chronicles 33, verses 10 through 13, that Manasseh, who was incredibly evil, Manasseh was incredibly evil, but the Bible tells us they put a hook in his nose and carried him off to Babylon. And when they carried him off to Babylon, he humbled himself and he prayed. Now, it doesn't state the word explicitly. But remember what 2 Chronicles 7.14 said would happen if you humble yourself and pray. If you humble yourself, if you pray, if you seek your, my face and turn from your wicked ways, then I will forgive. This is the point. That statement that God would not forgive is made about the man who seems to have been forgiven. Therefore, what does it mean? What does it mean? I think it means... That even after forgiveness, there are profound consequences of sin. Manasseh was in some ways the most dramatic example of God saving the chiefest of sinners before the Apostle Paul. In some ways, he was the preeminent Old Testament example of that. But at the same time, his sin brought profound consequences on the land. And 2 Kings shows us that he, more than any one person, was responsible for them being in captivity. Somewhere in my journeys, I think it's somewhere in the state of Alabama, that, that I've been told about a Christian, a person who'd fallen away, a person who did some horrible thing and who is on death row and, and, and I can't remember the end of the story if he has already been executed or if he is awaiting execution. 
Is there an inconsistency between being executed for a sin that you've been forgiven of? And we understand that point, don't we? We understand that a person could be forgiven and yet still their crimes may be of such a nature that they still may demand punishment. And I think that's part of what God says too when He states, I will not forgive. To enter into a covenant with a holy God is a profound thing. And we can't think that our rebellion, our disobedience is excused by it or that our sins never have consequences. And at the same time, even this expression to me, I will not forgive their transgressions. And saying this about Manasseh, in a certain sense, it only highlights the mercy and grace of God even more that that said about one whom God forgave. I mean, think about that. Think about that. Think about how in a back, backward way that highlights His mercy, His compassion, and His grace. What questions or thoughts do you have right there? Anything? Yes. My question was like, isn't that there is a little bit of contradiction with the New Testament uh, belief that Jesus Christ died for our sins and once we confess our sins and ask for forgiveness, Mm -hmm. God will forgive us. The man on the cross, the last minute, Oh, uh, yes, we do not want to minimize uh, Christ, His death, and the fact that Christ can forgive all sin. It's not our, our point is not to minimize it. And our point is not to minimize right here, is not to minimize right here that God doesn't forgive in the Old Testament. Because God does forgive in the Old Testament. God forgives graciously and mercifully. But these passages emphasize we cannot continue in rebellion and believe, okay, God is fine with that. It demands repentance. Demands repentance right there. And also, there still may be consequences. But I'm not trying to minimize the gracious, forgiving nature of God, nor am I trying to minimize the profound significance of the death of Christ. But I don't want us either. I think I'm guarding more against the other side. I don't want us because of that, because God is so merciful and gracious and forgiving, and because Christ has died for our sins, and brings us forgiveness. I don't want us to, to, from that, minimize how profoundly serious it is to choose to sin and to do wrong. 
And I think you can still find both taught in the Old Testament and in the New. You know, in 1 John 3, verses 4 through 10, the very purpose for which Christ came is to destroy works of the devil. And so he's using this to say the one who does righteousness is righteous, and the one who commits sin is of the devil. In 1 John 4, verses uh, 1 John 3, verses 4 through 10. Uh, does that help some? Okay. <laughs> I understand if you haven't thought about it before, this may be this may be a profound thing. But we don't we don't say this to minimize God's God's forgiveness. And, and like I said, I think in a certain way, it even highlights it. Yeah, most places it says we have to repent. Yes, we have to repent. And, and, and you take people in Acts 2 who had crucified Jesus. I mean, it's hard to get a bigger sin than that. They crucified Jesus, and when they are convicted of their sin and cry, men and brethren, what should we do? They are told, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for forgiveness of sin. And if you can be forgiven of that sin, there is hope for forgiveness for every sin. And almost, if not every sin, almost every big category of sin, you can look at in the New Testament and find that people were forgiven of them. Bob? Yes. The uh, <clears throat> thing I believe that is, is that this leaps off the page at me when I read, it, read this is, of course, we're reading with the knowledge of what follows. Yes, yes. And yes. Uh, might have been a different setting for them in the moment, but uh, obviously the weakness lies with mankind. And yeah. that is that is prevalent here in this. That's what, it's not that God is not willing, is it is that man is not able able to keep himself out of trouble. Or, you know, yeah, or, not, yeah. We're not willing to do that. Not yeah, to we're willing, that. Might be, yeah. yeah. But, but you're exactly right. I mean... We quickly go from one trouble to another. And, you know, Sarah said something before about swept away as they were, maybe in the emotion of the moment. They might say, oh, yes, we will not forsake the Lord to serve other gods. And I've had those moments, and my guess is you've had these moments, that you have heard someone, and I can think about this when I was 15 years old and hearing a lesson at a gospel meeting one time. And somebody presented a lesson about the cross of Christ in one of those country congregations that I grew up in, a church that I would later preach for. And, uh, and he presented it so powerfully and so dramatically. I know I felt, I said, I'm never going to sin again. Now, that resolve is good. Be moved is good. But do we keep that? You know, we are so quick to forgive and we're not willing, as Bob said, sometimes to stick to the course, to stay to the journey, and to walk in His way. And, and I think this is it's more a statement about man's sin than it is God's refusal to forgive. Because, because some people, how many people... Use the fact that God is merciful and, and, and gracious as an excuse for rebellion. Today, even, how many, after people have preached, 
Shall we do good that sin may abound? And still, that is all over in, in, in our world. So, I didn't mean to take that much time on that verse. But the people said, the people said when Joshua challenges them, Joshua wants them to know what they're getting into. And they said, no, verse, verse 21, we will serve the Lord. And I think that's what he wants all the time. But he wants them to really follow through on that. And he says, your witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen to serve the Lord. And by the way, the word serve in verse 21. The word serve in verse 22. This word is appearing quite a few times. In verse 23. Now therefore put away the foreign gods which are in your midst and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said, we will serve the Lord our God and we will obey His voice. Now doesn't verse 23 sound... Kind of bad to begin with. Now, here the people are saying, the people are saying, we're going to serve the Lord. And he said, okay, you put away the foreign gods among you. What are they doing with foreign gods? Come on, people. Wake up. What, what are they doing with that? Put away the foreign gods which are among you. Now, I don't know whether to make a big deal of this or not. But the people, it's not said specifically that they put away the foreign gods among them. Are, are we just to assume that happened? Or does that mean they really didn't do it? I don't know. But let's look at another time. And by the way, where does this happen? Hey, Tommy, I think there might have been one more question. Maybe not. I, did, did, I, I put up my hand. Okay. okay. Do you have time? Go ahead. Go ahead. Ask the question. We will make some time. It may take a little longer. It's a little different. Uh, I was born in the country of India mm -hmm. in, in 1939, long before all of you were born. <laughs> well, you're assuming. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, I don't think that anybody um, when I was one and a half years old, my mother took me to the country of Malaysia. My father was already there. Mm -hmm. So that's where I grew up. Mm -hmm. Not long after, the Japanese took over the country. They were run by the British. Yeah. The Japanese took over. And they ran the country. They were very cruel. Mm -hmm. But they left to left the people to do to run their life. Didn't didn't bother very much. Mm -hmm. um, what I'm telling you is from my childhood. Of course I learned everything later. I was one of those when they came. Um, they didn't bother you. So but the Japanese currency was not worth the paper it was. So the Malaysians of all races had to cultivate the land, grow food, keep, keep chicken and cattle and all that, and, keep, and maintain. So they did, and they did a good job. 
uh, religion. They didn't bother you. Mm -hmm. There was no Christian, as far as I can remember. Mm -hmm. We had no place to go and bed. My father was a Christian from India. My mother was a Christian. We had Christian brothers and sisters. I don't remember going to church or anything like that. Um, and then, after three years later, after America dropped bomb, Nagasaki and Hiroshima, you all probably know that, the Japanese left. Yes. And British came back. Um, that, then life continued. Mm -hmm. And we, 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 we continued with our religious practice and all that. Mm -hmm. But we were not taught what, uh, how to behave and religion. We were not taught Christianity as we know it as now. No. It was so different. Mm -hmm. uh, it, uh, it was not anywhere. So we were not grasping. Christianity as we know it now. Mm -hmm. if, uh, for instance, mm, mm, there was. Uh, I think we were about to end. Okay, no, that's the okay. That's it. They, they did not uh, enforce uh, enforce discipline. People who stole, they didn't enforce, enforce discipline. Okay. People who broke the rules and all that. Okay. And the British didn't. Not the British, it was the oh, British was not. After the British became too popular. It's a long story, but I don't want to go. Okay, But we, we appreciate you all being here. I don't know if all of y'all have met. Uh, Matt and Sarah, and they're such fine people. They have a tremendous story. And y'all just got back from India, didn't you? So you just got back from India or Malaysia? Malaysia. Malaysia. Yeah. Malaysia. Or you didn't go to India any? But no, no. I, I was thinking about went to Bali. Yeah. Oh, sure. My my history is a little. My story is a little different. Yes. I grew up yes. in Malaysia, India. Yes. And uh, at the age of nineteen, I went to Malaysia and got married to him. Yes, yes, that's right, that's right. Yeah. And, um, uh, but, but, but they are such sweet people, and it's a thrill to have you all. And uh, sorry you got cut off by the clock. I, I, I know that feeling. I can relate. <laughs> I get caught, cut off by it sometimes, too. But um, we will try to finish with Joshua 24 on Sunday. <laughs>